All right, folks, good evening. If you'll open your Bibles with me to 1 Samuel chapter 29. I think this is the 37th sermon I've preached from this book, and we're, we're nearing it into it, but it's only half of the book, right? So that this division between 1 and 2 Samuel was not done by the author, but done by us later for, for publishing purposes and that sort of thing, but... Um, but we're nearing the end of this first book tonight here in 1 Samuel chapter 29. And tonight we're going to see some of the themes that we have been looking at and seeing repeated again and again throughout this book. And that's really how authors work, right? They'll give us some, some major themes and we shouldn't be surprised to see them again and again. Uh, these chapter divisions are also not done by the authors. Those were added later as well. Uh, so let's keep that in mind. But I'd like to jump right into uh, our text this evening. So let's just start by reading chapter 29 together. When we near the end of this, we'll have read the entire book of 1 Samuel out loud, which is neat. It takes, takes about four hours. <laughs> now when the Philistines had gathered all their forces at Aphek, and the Israelites were encamped by the spring that was in Jezreel, as the lords of the Philistines were passing on by hundreds and by thousands, and David and his men were passing on in the rear with Achish, the commander of the Philistines said, What are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish said to the commanders of the Philistines, Is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who has been with me now for days and years since he, and since he has deserted to me? I have found no fault in him to this day. But the commanders of the Philistines were angry with him. And the commanders of the Philistines said to him, Send the man back, that he might return to the place to which you have assigned him. He shall not go down to battle with us, lest in the battle he become an adversary to us. For how could this fellow reconcile himself to his Lord? Would it not be with the heads of the men here? Is this not David of whom they sing to one another in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. Verse 6. Then Achish called David and said to him, As the Lord lives, you have been honest. And to me it seems right that you should march out and end with me in the campaign. For I have found nothing wrong with you from the day of your coming to me to this day. Nevertheless, the Lords do not approve of you. So go back now and go peaceably that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. Verse 8, And David said to Achish, But what have I done? And why have you found your servant from the day I entered your service until now, that I may not go out and fight against the enemies of my lord the king? And Achish answered David and said, I know that you are as blameless in my side as an angel of God. Nevertheless, the commanders of the Philistines have said, He shall not go up with us in the battle. Now then, rise early in the morning with the servants of your Lord who came with you, and start early in the morning, and depart as soon as you have light. So David set out with his men early in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines. But the Philistines went up to Jezreel. Let's pray together. Father, we're so thankful for your word. It is precious. It is powerful. It pierces. All of it is useful, you have taught us. And all of it points to you. So help us tonight that as we read your word, let it pierce our hearts. 
Let, us, let it point us to Christ. Let it be useful for instruction on who you are and how we should live in light of your name. I pray, O oh God, that you would accomplish miracles in this hour together, that our lives would be changed. So, Father, would you by your Spirit do what we cannot do? So let my words fall to the ground, blow away, let them be forgotten. For no one here needs to hear from any mere man. We need to hear from you. So let your word remain in our heart. Let it, let it go with us as we leave tonight. And let it bear all sorts of varied fruit in our lives. And let that fruit draw people to you and bring glory to Christ. We ask this in your name. Amen. Well, this is a chapter that is really put together, especially starting in chapter 27. So chapter 27, chapter 28, chapter 29, especially all go together. And really, even this is sort of a last portion of these five chapters all the way up to, to chapter 31. They're all very closely connected. And we've said, we've seen all throughout this book that our author is using a literary technique that is very common, right? He is jumping back and forth between David and Saul, initially Samuel, but David and Saul, and he is doing so to make a point. And so when you're reading, you've got to pay attention to the author's techniques. Your high school English class mattered more than you thought, right? Because when we're reading, <laughs> I see some no's. It does, right? Because when we're reading the scriptures, we still need to be good students, good readers of the Bible. And this author has been making a point. He's been comparing and contrasting these two figures. Well, two weeks ago, back in chapter 27, we studied David's desperate decision to flee or to defect, as Achish said tonight in our chapter, to defect to the Philistines. That after yet another run-in with Saul and another time that David showed mercy, David decided that his situation was hopeless and that the only solution was to his Saul problem was to go over to the Philistines. Now, you've got to remember who the Philistines are. They are Israel's arch enemy. And it is not just for a short period of time. It is for a long period of time. They're arch enemy. And so, and so he's going to his enemies to seek asylum. Well, King Achish, who is again in our story tonight, is a Philistine king who agreed to let David and his band of soldiers come over on one condition. They've got to work for him, right? They are to conduct military operations for the Philistines, even against his own people. You notice that in this text tonight, King Achish had said, hey, David has already proven himself, right? He will fight even his own people, which we have seen is a problem. Well, David had defected in a sense, but he had not gone as far as Achish had, had thought, and so we saw back in chapter 27 that David had been using a mixture of cunning and shrewdness, if you put it in a positive light, or outright deceit, treachery even. And he had managed to manipulate Achish into thinking that he was attacking Israel when in fact he was attacking some of Israel's enemies, who were also Philistine enemies. 
And as I've interpreted these actions in the past, uh, I've interpreted them as most commentators have, and I would continue to do so, that, that this is and should be interpreted as sin on David's part. Some try to twist this and, and pull some positive things out of it, and there may, you may be able to do that. But in general, we're seeing unbelief in David's life. That after years on the run from King Saul, even though God has constantly provided for him, even though God has constantly protected David, David had just had enough. And he took matters into his own hands and he found his own solution. So I'm still convinced that reading is right, so I'll be operating from that tonight. But let's move on to chapter 28, okay? That was last week. We've got to see all this fits together, so hang with me, especially if you weren't here. We've got to remember how chapter 28 began. David found himself in a major pickle. Even though he had uh, tricked Achish into thinking that he was fighting the Philistines, now this king said, okay, now I want you to go and fight who? The Israelites. Okay, if, if you miss this part of the story, this is not going to be that helpful. So you've got to get your head around. And folks, just a tip, when you're reading Old Testament narrative, ask yourself, do I know what's going on in the story? Right? I'm, I'm telling you, you may, it may sound silly, but y'all know what it's like. It's like 6.15 in the morning, and you're like, Achish, what Achish? Try to pay attention and think, okay, who are the major characters? Who is on whose side? So that's what we're trying to get our heads around right now. The Philistines were gearing up for another major, major military operation. And they said, well, we've got the, Achish figured, well, I've got this band of, uh, of, of military mercenaries. I'm going to send them. And they've already proven that they're against their own country. So we'll send them into battle. And at the beginning of 28, David, who's in a terrible position, said, all right, I'll show you what I can do. And so we're kind of left like, what? Is David going to go fight the people of God? Then it dramatically shifts over to King Saul, starting in chapter 28, verse 3. And last week we saw what has to be one of the most peculiar passages in the Bible, where Samuel is called up from the dead by a necromancer and speaks true prophecy to uh, King Saul. And you'll have to get the full deals on that last week. Um, But we are given this incredible remarkable picture. King Saul, who has been abandoned by God, he's getting ready to be attacked, right? So he's got a problem in his life. David's got his problems. Saul has his problems. You and I, we've got our problems, right? Saul has his problems and they're worse because he's been abandoned by God. So we see Saul also turning to his own devices to try to find a way out. And since God isn't talking to him, and since he's basically killed all the priests, Saul goes to the witch of Endor. And Samuel is somehow communicated with from the dead. He's cranky about being disturbed. You catch all these details? But he delivers this prophecy that will be fulfilled that tomorrow, Saul, since he has indeed been rejected by God, he will be killed in this battle. Okay, these are all the, all the details that are going on. And so now when we come to chapter 29, the story has dramatically or drastically switched back to David. And the author's continuing this back and forth method. And, and it leaves us with all sorts of questions about King Saul and his visit with Samuel from the dead. 
But once again, just like back in chapter 27, when we look at chapter 29, there's very little theological content in this chapter. Did you catch that as I was reading it? In fact, the only reference to God comes from the mouth of a pagan king. And he's, it seems, just giving lip service. He's giving a political nod, a courtesy reference to David's God. But that's where we have to note that the historical books of the Bible, and by the way, so much of the Bible is historical narrative, so we've got to develop our skills in reading them. So much of the, the historical books of the Bible, they're not like other records of history, right? It's different when you read the history of Israel in the Bible than if you read the history of, let's say, Rome or England. It's different, Because these books have been divinely inspired and are theologically crafted. It's very important to keep in mind. The author has arranged this content in order to make a theological point. And he's using historical details and persons and political figures. But you have to remember he's making a theological point. And the danger for us is that when we study passages of the Bible, whether it's verse by verse or book by book, or as Joel does sometimes, like phrase by phrase, which is great, right? I'll I'll probably do that next time. We have to be careful not to lose sight of these bigger, broader, literary, sometimes even more subtle textual clues, And that's what's going on here. All throughout Samuel, the author has been comparing and contrasting Saul and David. And here, starting especially chapter 27, that's what we're seeing. And so you have to keep in mind that what's interesting about these three chapters is they're telling the story of two sinners. Two sinners who are in a mess. Both Saul and David have sinned. And both of them have failed to obey and trust the Lord. And both of them have gotten into messes. Remember how we asked last week, you ever found yourself in a mess because of your sin? I certainly have. It's a common problem for all of us. David has turned to the Philistines for salvation. And Saul has turned to a necromancer for a type of salvation. But the outcome between David and Saul could not be any more different. Both of them are sinners, but only one of them will be saved. Both of them are trying to interact with God, yet in just a few chapters, Saul will be killed in battle, and tonight we'll see David miraculously delivered, and it won't be the last time. Soon, David will be king over Israel. Now, I'm not going to answer this question just yet, But I want you to go ahead and start thinking. What is the difference between Saul and David? We've been trying to answer this question for a while, and we're going to build on that tonight. But really, what is the difference between King Saul and David? Both of them are sinners. But why is it that David is delivered and Saul is destroyed? Why does God save David and then condemn Saul? an incredibly important question for us that really gets at the very heart of the Christian faith. How is it that man can be saved? Before we answer that question, I want you to start chewing on that. Let's make sure that we've got a handle on all that's happening in this particular text. 
In chapter 29, we see this abrupt shift where the author drops us back into David's situation. Where his Philistine neighbors are preparing for battle, right? They're doing the battle parades, right? They're showing off their military strength and they're working on logistics. And it's kind of an awkward situation because as the Philistines are getting ready for battle, over here in the corner, we have David and his men looking like visiting, looking like visiting team's fans who accidentally bought tickets in the student section. They're kind of looking around. I shouldn't have worn blue to this game, right? And the Philistine lords notice this, and in verse 3, they start asking, what are these Hebrews doing here? I mean, that's a great question, right? They're getting ready to go to battle against who? The Hebrews. And here are David and 600 Hebrews. So it's a very good question. So they address this to Achish. Remember, there's five Philistine lords. So there's, I guess, a couple commanders that are working on this together. And Achish tells them, hey, hey, don't, don't worry. Those guys, they're with me. They tell him, he explains to them that David is a deserter. And that his men have deserted and abandoned their people and abandoned Saul. They, that they are defectors and that they are traitors. So much so that he has incredible confidence in them. And for a long time they have proven faithful and loyal to the Philistine cause. He says that it's actually been a period of months and years. When last chapter we heard it was I think a year and six months or so or eight months. It shows us how effective David has been in his lie. And in his trickery. But the Philistine leaders were not quite as naive or trusting as, as Achish. And they reminded him in verse 5, Have you forgotten who this man is? This is the man who is so successful at war that they have written songs about him. Even the Philistines knew the songs about David. David's, right, Saul slayed his thousands and David his ten thousands. Well, who do you think those ten thousands were? The Philistines, right? David came to fame by doing what? Killing a famous Philistine. He murdered, or he went out and took the heads of hundreds, or the foreskins of hundreds of Philistines, right? This is not a popular guy in their area. So, and how do you know, they argue, there in verse 5, how do you know that he's not going to turn against us in battle? Send him back. Right? That's the word that they give him. So in verse 6, Achish goes to David. They seem to be like buddies. And he delivers what seems to be bad news. Or is it good news? He gives lip service to David's God. And Achish makes this sort of strange, maybe even almost pitiful, groveling display of apologizing. He's praising David. You've been nothing but faithful to me. Just as much as an angel from heaven, Right? You've been faithful to the Philistine cause, but my hands are tied. Now you've got to go. Go quietly. So we, the readers, are kind of relieved. It seems like David is being delivered from his predicament, right? It seems like that he's found a solution, even though it seems to be either lucky or divine, however you interpret that, right? But David surprises us. In verse 8, look what David does. He protests the decision. Let's read verse 8 together, if I can find it. David said to Achish, But what have I done? What have you found in your servant from the day I entered your service until now, that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my lord, the king? I mean, do you see what David's doing? He's like 
pleading to go fight Israel. Why, why, I mean, what is he doing? What, what is going on here? So, <laughs> we ha- David is arguing about his salvation. So we have this strange dynamic. Achish is praising David for his faithfulness, which he has no reason to praise. And David is protesting his rejection, which he has no reason to protest. People do crazy things, right? Not just kids, but people. What a strange situation. But there's something else for us to notice here. The text tells us back here in verse 1 that all of this is taking place in a location, in Aphek, right? Now, the geography may seem insignificant to us, right? We, haven't, we don't operate here, but we understand the geography of the places we live, and it has significance to us, right? We, we know what those places are like. Well, this may not seem significant to us because we're not familiar with the biblical atlas. But, but remember, the writer has just told us how bleak Saul's situation was in chapter 28. You've got to keep that in mind. Now, here in chapter 29, all of these events are happening at Aphek. And that points to how bleak David's situation is. If you remember all the way back to 1 Samuel chapter 4... Another major event happened at Aphek. This is the place where the Philistines camped before they did the massive defeat of Israel. It's where they were when they captured the Ark of the Covenant. And it's where they were when they killed Eli the high priest. This was the disaster that led Israel to take matters into their own hands and say, we want a king and we want him now. There's history here. Saul had been, they demanded a king, and the king that they demanded had been a disaster. Do you see this pattern? When you take matters into your own hands and you sin to do so, what results? Disaster. We see it again and again. And I'm sure you have some stories from your life. If not, come ask me about my stories, right? This is where they got Saul. And now here we have David, the king who is in waiting who is assembled with the Philistine army and he is complaining because he cannot fight against his own people. You see the irony here, right? Do you see the irony? It's subtle, but should this not be for us a reminder of the danger of unbelief that leads us to take matters into our own hands rather than trusting in and waiting on the Lord? Brothers and sisters, there is no question that in this fallen life, you and I are faced with all sorts of incredibly difficult predicaments, painful situations, confusing circumstances, suffering of all varieties and intensities. And we see here and all throughout the scriptures that even God's most faithful servants will be faced and be placed in situations that are so perplexing and so desperate that we will all find ourselves facing what seem to be overwhelming temptations to sin. Because it feels like that we can change our situation if we sin. Some sinful way out. These are times where it feels like God is not acting. And so our only decent option, it seems would be to find a sinful way out. To sin to find relief. We should pay attention to the example of Israel and to the example of Saul and to the example that takes place here at Aphek. 
sin will never, ever, ever make your life better. It will only add to your problems. It may provide temporary relief, but mark my words and the words that are given to us in the word. It will never make your life better. Far better it is to wait patiently on the Lord, though he can seem at times to be notoriously slow. Obedience, no matter how high the cost and no matter how slow the payoff, is always worth it. Obedience is the path to the happy life. We're trying to teach that to our children. This is not just something you have to do because mommy and daddy say it. We are pleading with you. Obedience leads to the happy life. The scriptures say, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. This is a major high-level lesson from these chapters as we take them together. But what about the truths about our God are revealed in this passage? What else can we learn about how we should live as his servants here from chapter 29? Let me draw your attention to three more lessons. The first is this. In this passage, God warns us of the danger of worldly living. The danger of worldly living. As we've studied the life of David, we've seen many different ways that David functions as a forerunner to Christ. Some say David is a small Christ. He's a mini Christ. He's looking ahead to Christ. There are numerous places that this is seen. And Jesus himself is called the son of David. And he is the king who came to occupy forever David's throne, as we will eventually see in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And David's life is clearly at many times intended to point us ahead to Christ. And this is most famously seen in the story of David and Goliath, right? But do we not know that David is not the Christ? He is quite clearly a sinner. Which means that there are many times where David does not function as a shadow of Christ or a type of Christ. And this is one of those places. Also Bathsheba. Also the last seven chapters, right? (laughs) We're seeing plenty of David's sin. By crossing over to the Philistines, David does not teach us about Christ, but instead he teaches us, I would say, about the carnal Christian. The man who tries to serve Christ and the world at the same time. One foot in one camp and one foot in the other. Now before we start mounting our high horses, let's slow down and let's pull out that mirror and let's take a long look in the mirror, right? Because this is not just the exotic sin of murder or treachery or adultery. This is a sin of common entanglement that is so common to all of us. Worldliness. All this time, we have seen David living a double life. On the one hand, David still looks to God for his ultimate salvation. But on the other hand, he's looking to the Philistines for temporary salvation. The big picture stuff, he'll give that to God. But the day-to-day stuff, he's taken matters into his own hands and he's turned it over to the world. Is David not just like the Christian who wants to go to heaven when he dies, but he also wants the good life? So he'll come to church. He'll mark Christian on Facebook. He might even claim it at work. Is he not like the man who tries to love both God and money? Is he not like the man who claims new life in Christ but obsesses over measuring up to the world's standards? 
Is he not like the man who claims faith in Christ, but his life is virtually indistinguishable from the world? He says he's a follower of Christ. He says that he goes to church. But the way he spends his money, the way that he entertains himself, the way that he solves his marriage problems, the things that make him most excited are just like the things of the world. Let that question ring for you a bit. What is it that makes you most excited? Is it the same stuff that makes the world most excited? Are we not all tempted to trust in God for eternal happiness, but then turn to the world for our daily happiness? That's the definition of a carnal Christian. One who claims allegiance to Christ because he doesn't want hell, but functionally his real allegiance is to the world. You see, that's a massive problem that's going on here. David is a flip-flopper. He's fighting Goliath and the Philistines when it's convenient or when it fits his fancy. And then he's fighting for the Philistines the next day. But it's very clear, right? Practically, you cannot fight for the Philistines and also lead the Israelites into battle. That's what a king was to do. Friends, I fear that when the church of the future looks back on the American church of today... That they will recognize us as perhaps some of the most worldly, most carnal Christians in the history of the church. You can barely tell the difference in the church and the world. And we are one of the first generations to be so indistinguishable. Other generations have done it, but I fear that our generation above most in church history are as carnal as they have come. There have only been a few times in all of church history where Christ's church was so worldly, so carnal, so indistinguishable from the world. We all want Christ, but we also want the things of the world. But Jesus said, you can't do that. You can't love Christ without hating the things of the world. You can't serve both God and money. You can't live unless you die. And David had managed to trick Achish But the other Philistines, commanders, they called him out. David had not abandoned the Lord. He wasn't wasn't like Saul. He hadn't totally apostatized. Deep down, his allegiance, like many carnal Christians, was and is to the Lord. God saves carnal Christians. But the Philistines spat him out. Look down at verse 7. They said, go back now that you may not displease the Lord to the Philistines. Carnal Christians stink. And the world can smell us a mile away. That's why, if you think about it, we have seen an explosion of church attendance in America since the Civil War. And our culture has remained virtually unchanged. We got buildings everywhere and little power. Brothers and sisters, we cannot have it both ways. We cannot set our mind on the things of the flesh and on the things of the Spirit. They are opposed to one another. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, What partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Bial? Let me ask you, what voice, which voice do you allow to condition your heart the most? Where do you give your most attention Is it to the voice of the world? Is it to the voice of the Lord? As Romans 8 says, those who are in the flesh 
cannot please God. I wish we could spend time asking more pointed questions about our marks as carnal Christians. But I'll leave that to you and we must go on. Because we come to a second point, and that is our God, this is one we've seen before, that our God often works in the background. He works in mysterious ways. We've seen this numerous times throughout Samuel, so I won't spend too much time here. But we must again marvel at God's sovereign and quiet presence in this chapter. The only reference to God in this passage is done by a pagan king. But that does not mean that God is not here and that he's not working. Is it not obvious that God is at work here to deliver David? Surely, will we, surely we will not attribute this turn of events to luck or to good fortune or to David's cunning. No, God is at work here to deliver David from the mess that he's gotten himself in. And is this not what God does to each one of us? He works not only to save us from hell, but he's also working to save us right now from the power of sin in our lives. And the aim of every single sin that you and I face is to drag us away from away to our deaths, according to James 1. But God is not willing that any of his plans for salvation be hijacked for, for sin. How in the world... I mean, think about it. How in the world would David ever become king of Israel if he had actually gone into battle with the Philistines? If he had gone to fight Israel? Like, that doesn't go well during campaign season, right? There was that time where you fought with the Russians, but, you know, we'll overlook. Right? Think, I mean, think about this. This is serious. God is saving David from his own idols. And that's what he does for us. But he does it in such surprising ways. He actually uses the Philistine lords to deliver David. And David seemed to even be kicking and screaming against it, I suppose. And again, we see that for a sovereign God, everything is at his disposal when it comes to working out his purposes. Everything. He can even use our enemies. He can even use our sin-induced circumstances. He can even use our idols themselves to work for our deliverance. I once heard a story of a destitute Christian, a woman who was a widow, incredibly poor, and she had run out of food and she was in danger of starving. So she prayed out loud to the Lord and she called out to her Heavenly Father and she told him, as she should, of her predicament. She asked God to provide bread for her. Well, somehow her neighbor, who was an atheist, an outspoken atheist, overheard her prayer and thought to herself, hmm. I could have a little fun with this. So her atheist neighbor goes out and buys two loaves of bread, and she left them by the Christian's front door, and she waited. In the morning, the destitute Christian came out, and when she discovered the loaves by her door, she cried out and praised to God. God has answered my prayer. But that's when the atheist popped out and said, Ha! I was the one who brought the bread. God didn't answer your prayer. Christian smiled at her. She said, oh yes it was. It was the Lord who answered my prayer, even though he used a devil to do it. The Lord moves in mysterious ways. And for some reason, he moves in our lives so often, much like the way he moves in chapter 29. Behind the scenes, not even noticed. For some reason, God loves to hide the mechanisms of his ways. 
He keeps them under the hood. He's like the app on your phone that drains the battery because it's working in the background. Some of you are like, right? You can't. He's always at work in your life, Christian. He's always blessing. He's always redeeming. He's always working to save. There is nothing that is not at his disposal. Do you remember how the psalmist says, you prepare for me a table in the face of my enemies. God is at work and he can even use the Philistine commanders to deliver David from his own mess. This prompted me, since we talked about this in the last two chapters, I was was reflecting today, why, why does God do it like this? Why are his ways so mysterious? Well, there's many answers to that question. And the Bible gives us some. But I, I was just thinking, why is it that his ways are so unpredictable? Why is it that God seems to like to cover his tracks? And one of the things that I was thinking, well, I guess uh, there's a number of reasons. I mean, one is that one could be that God wants to make us more spiritually sensitive. To constantly be on the lookout for his ways. Or perhaps he wants us to discover it ourselves and to own the discovery, right? It's much more transformative when we discover something about God than if we're told something about God. But what stands out to me the most is this. Could it be that God works in mysterious ways so that we would be more inclined to study him, his character, Could it be that he's more interested in us discovering his character than figuring out what he's doing? That we would press in to God? Could it be that we could actually be distracted by looking for rescue that when it comes we forget the rescuer himself? Could it be that he knows that we are most often like the nine men with leprosy? who, there were ten, of course, and once these ten men were healed by Jesus, do you remember? Nine of them forgot to even thank Jesus. They just wanted his power. They just wanted the healing. You see, God desires that we press in to know not only his ways, but press in to know his heart and his character. And as how Charles Spurgeon, how Charles Spurgeon put it, he said, when you can't see his hand... Trust his heart. That's the idea. Is this not what the Lord wanted Job to learn in dramatic fashion? When Job, who was totally perplexed, Job never read the book of Job. You know that, right? Like he didn't get chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4. He didn't get that part. He was totally perplexed about the strange and terrifying ways of God. And eventually, halfway through, he throws up his hands with frustrated faith. Listen to what he says. Behold, I go forward and he's not there. I go backward, but I do not perceive him. And on the left, when when he, he isn't working, I do not behold him. He turns to the right hand, but I do not see him. But he knows the way I take. And when he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. My foot has held fast to his steps. Beloved, could it be that we are tempted to love salvation more than God himself? Could it be that we're tempted to forget God? Could we delight in the work of God in our lives so much that we forget to delight in God himself? 
Let the mysterious ways of God move us to press in to know his character more. So that even when he perplexes you, you could say like Paul did when he threw up his hands at the end of Romans 11 and said, oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How vast and unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord and who has been his counselor? Nobody. But I want to come back to the question that I posed at the beginning. Why does David, why did David, a foolish sinner, enjoy the salvation of the Lord and Saul didn't? I mean, what's the difference between Saul and David? Both are sinners. Why is David destroyed and Saul, why is David delivered and Saul destroyed? Why does David get a throne and Saul gets hell? I think there's only one right answer to that question. Grace alone. Grace alone. Salvation is owed only by grace. God saved David and not Saul because God's sovereign grace. Both men, I would argue, are catastrophic sinners. This is the story of two sinners and one Savior, but only one man gets saved. We'll pick up on this more next week, but we have to see this here. Salvation is not owed to David because David is faithful. David did not have enough faithfulness. Have we not seen that yet? We haven't even gotten to Bathsheba. David did not have enough faithfulness. Salvation is owed not because of David's faithfulness, but because of God's faithfulness. You have to see that the difference between David and Saul was that David was in relationship with God. He was in a covenant relationship with the Lord. God had selected both Saul and David to be kings in Israel. But God had only given David the covenant promise. A covenant that we will see later fully established in 2 Samuel chapter 7. But only David enjoyed the protection of covenant. Brothers and sisters, we all need a Savior. And if you trust in your own faithfulness to save you, even your faithfulness will fail you. Salvation is owed only to grace. And that salvation is found only by entering into the safety of a covenant relationship with God. The covenant that is offered to us is that he will never leave us nor forsake us. That there is no sin that is bigger than the grace of God. And to enter into that covenant protection means that you are safe, my friend. This covenant relationship is found, it is realized by faith. By turning away from sin, turning away from the world, and fleeing to Christ. And the covenant safety of King Jesus, the right one who sits on the throne of David. Turn to him today. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for Christ. And I pray, Lord, that tonight that our pride would not be stroked, but that our hearts would be softened, that our humility would increase, that Christ would increase all the more. Accomplish this in our lives, we pray. And we ask this in the name of Jesus, the true and better David. Amen.